Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I hope all of you guys are having a great week so far. We are also live on AMP, so if you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast feeds, don't forget that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. We're continuing our player rankings of the last 25 years today with 21, 20, 19, and 18. Taking a look back at some guys that have been out of the league for a little while. You guys know the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And last but not least, before we get started, last night I got to run up to Phoenix to watch uh, an early screening of the Gran Turismo movie based on a true story. Super, super interesting story about this uh, uh, contest that Nissan held where they had all these really good Gran Turismo players from around the world basically compete for an opportunity to then get to learn how to race real cars and then experience real success in the real racing scene from that, which is interesting based on the simple idea that Gran Turismo was a racing simulator, not a game. We all played like Need for Speed and Road Rash and all those like weird racing games that were more, you know, comical and over the top and, and very, you know, unrealistic. And then if you played Gran Turismo, you couldn't just floor it through every single turn. You had to break. You had to actually embrace some of the realities of racing. And so it makes some sense that that would translate directly towards the actual racing experience. And I uh, the, I thought it was really cool in the beginning part of the movie how they kind of broke down how the creator of Gran Turismo worked really, really hard to make it as realistic as possible, which is kind of cool how those two things kind of bridged. But, you know, the entire movie hinges on David Harbour and Archie Medecki doing just an incredible job acting because it's such a unique kind of premise, right? And David Harbour is just a freak talent. And he's absolutely hilarious throughout the entire movie. And then I thought Archie kind of stole the show. He's super, super talented actor. You have to be like super invested in a storyline like this as a watcher of the movie 
movie to enjoy it. And in order for that to happen, you got to have really, really high level acting. And Archie just straight up knocked it out of the park. Um, the The cinematography is insane. I highly recommend seeing it in theaters. They use a bunch of different camera effects like drones and different camera angles that are up close to the vehicle to really capture the intensity of that type of racing. Honestly, it's like a visceral experience when you're in the theater, especially when you're invested in the stakes that are at play, but you're like clinging to the seat because it's just this intense visceral experience because of the high quality cinematography. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like I said, I highly recommend you guys see it in theaters. It has a little bit of something for everyone. It's also super fast paced and keeps you engaged throughout. I I was looking just for fun at the uh, Rotten Tomatoes this morning. 98% of audience members who went to go see it uh, uh, gave it a thumbs up rating, which I think is not the least bit surprising because my wife and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a really cool little date night for us. Gran Turismo, based on a true story, is exclusively in movie theaters tomorrow. Get your tickets today. Rated PG-13. All right, let's talk some basketball. So, before we get into 21, 20, 19, and 18, a couple of things that I noticed in the comments, um, as is always the case when I do lists, I immediately piss people off. That's just how it works. I had people complaining about Tracy McGrady not being in the list. I had someone say that I was vastly overrated or underrating Paul George in this particular discussion. But by far the biggest one that people got upset about was Chris Paul. So I kind of wanted to elaborate on that really quick. Again, I chose 31 players for this list. And then I had to narrow it down to 25. Chris Paul was on that list of 31 players. From there, I had a list of criteria that I used. And again, like everyone's criteria is different. Like, I'm sorry, but if I set different criteria, my list could look completely different. And the six guys that don't make it are probably going to be a completely different six guys. Just like if I gave you guys a list of criteria and had you build the list, it could look completely different based on what you guys interpret those specific things to be. And I had six criteria yesterday that I broke down, and Chris Paul didn't perform well in those specific six criteria, which is why he missed the cut of 25. It doesn't mean he wasn't one of the most impactful players of this era. He absolutely was. Obviously, I had him in that top 31, right? Um, But the reality is, is anytime I set any sort of parameters, there are going to be people that gets squeezed. The, the best example I can give you guys is like the, uh, I was thinking about this this morning about the Ticketmaster kind of fiasco. I personally have had issues with Ticketmaster in the past. And so like, I I understand the plight of like Zach Bryan being like, I'm not going to use Ticketmaster anymore. I'm going to use a lottery. And I actually happen to get fortunate and win one of those lotteries. And I'm going to see Zach Bryan on Friday, but like each system has holes, right? Like, the Ticketmaster system favors the people with money. So if you're willing to pay an arm and a leg to go see a show, you can go see whatever you want because you can find a uh, a ticket at some price based on the market value and you can go see a movie but the or the, the show. But the people that get uh, squeezed are the people without money, right? And then you go to the Zach Bryan method where it's like we're going to do a lottery and all of a sudden, it's the people that are willing to pay more that get squeezed. So you could be the biggest Zach Bryan fan in the world, and you could save up $500 to go see him in Phoenix. But if you lose the lottery, you just don't get to see him. And so the point is, is like no matter where you set your criteria, no matter where you set your parameters, there are going to be things that slip through the cracks. And for me, in my list, I was very heavy on you know playoff accomplishments and big career-defining achievements. And 
Chris Paul just doesn't really have one of those. I like he hit a really big shot in a first round series against the San Antonio Spurs in a game seven to win the series and then fell apart down the stretch in that Houston Rockets series, right? Like it's just with with Chris Paul, there's just like there's these big moments, but there's just everything is missing the crescendo. And so again, like you guys know how much I I value Chris Paul. Those of you guys who have been listening to the show for a while, you probably remember the way I talked about him in the playoffs last year as he was destroying the New Orleans Pelicans and playing so well at the beginning of the Mavericks series. You guys have heard me talk about Chris Paul and how much I appreciate and respect him, but within this particular list and the specific set of parameters that I set up, he was one of the people that got squeezed out of a list of 31 players, right? So I just wanted to kind of break that down. Again, like if if I put Chris Paul in and I take Russell Westbrook out, there's going to be a million people pissed off that Russell Westbrook's not in it. If I put Chris Paul in and I take Jimmy Butler out, every single, single Miami Heat fan is going to be like, what the hell, dude? He has eight 40-point playoff games and has been the best player on two NBA Finals teams. What the hell are you doing, right? Like, there's no satisfying this type of list. But for me personally, I'm going to value playoff winning over just about anything else. There are players on this list that were frequently considered lesser players than Chris Paul, but they were major parts of championship teams. A couple of those guys we're going to talk about today. It, uh, uh, a couple of guards, right? So, like, again... This is just my system. It's not a perfect system. If I change the parameters, it's going to turn out different. I know some of you guys disagree with me, but I just wanted to kind of lay out my pathway for you guys so that you understand it a little bit better. So yesterday we had four players who had never won an NBA championship in that 25, 24, 23, and 22. From this point forward, every single player except for two is an NBA champion. So that kind of gives you an idea of the way that I value that specific accomplishment. Also, the two players that did not win NBA championships were some of the most iconic players from this particular era. Actually, if uh, if those of you guys in the comments take a guess, there's two players in the rest of the list that are not champions. I want to see if any of you guys can get that right. Put that in the comments. Um, And none of them are in today's video for, for whatever that's worth. All right, let's start with number 21. Tony Parker, the second best player on three championship teams. There was a couple of years there where he was a little closer to Manu Ginobili, but if you watch the Spurs, you always feared Tony Parker a little bit more than Manu. I viewed him as like the definitive second best player on that team, basically from 05 on. Um, he was a four-time NBA champion with the Spurs, though, in 03, 05, 07, and 2014, and he was the MVP of the 2007 NBA Finals. He never made a first-team All-NBA, but he did make four All-NBA teams, including back-to-back-to-back second-team All-NBAs in the early 2010s. Um, his prime stats. Now, again, keep an, and those of you guys who didn't see the previous video, I, I'm going to talk about their, their stats in their prime, their claim to fame, basically the thing that they're remembered for, their archetype, just kind of talk a little bit about what they were like as basketball players, their career-defining achievement, basically whatever their absolute peak was, and the last but not least, the biggest what-if of their career. So, uh, Tony Parker's prime stats. Now, keep in mind, the Spurs were kind of like the Warriors before the Warriors. They were kind of equal opportunity, even more so than the Warriors are, and ton of ball movement, ton of player movement. It wasn't a lot of like, just give one guy the ball and let him run the entire offense. And so as a result, their counting stats were never overly impressive. So the 2014 Spurs, for instance, the last championship of that dynasty, they didn't have a single player average over 17 points. 
for that entire season, and they won the championship. In the 2007 and 2005 seasons, they didn't have a single player average over 21 points. Tim Duncan was right at about 20 in both of those seasons. So statistical production with the Spurs is never going to pop like some of the other players on this list. But they won a shit ton of basketball games, and Tony Parker was the second best player on that team. So that's why, again, box score numbers can't tell the entire story in this particular case. Um even like Tim Duncan, who's near the top of this list, is a guy that didn't necessarily have overwhelmingly eye-popping statistical production over the second half of his career because of the way that team was put together. So I, I have Tony Parker's prime from 2005 to 2014. Um, he had 18 points, three rebounds, and six assists per game in that stretch. 56% true shooting. In the playoffs, 20 points per game, three rebounds, and six assists on 53% true shooting. So, like, again, as is always the case when you get to the later phases of the NBA playoffs, a lot of teams that rely heavily on motion, teams can scout that and get ahead of it a little bit, and things devolve more into traditional, you know, kind of static shot creation, like pick and rolls, post-ups, and isos, right? And so... Tony Parker was actually the guy that the Spurs leaned on a lot in those particular situations over the second half of their dynasty. So uh, the way I look at it, like the Spurs dynasty is kind of split into three phases. So there's like the first phase where they win the first two titles where Tim Duncan is just arguably the best player in the league, depending on who you ask. I think it was Shaq, but like he was right there with him, right? It was like basically Shaq, Kobe, and Tim Duncan were the three best players in the league. And it was Tim Duncan's dominance that really carried the Spurs over that stretch. Then there's kind of like this middle phase, and this is where you get to the 05-07 championships where Tim Duncan is still really, really good, but Manu and Tony Parker are on the rise. And as they're on the rise, you know, things are starting to become a little bit more equal opportunity, and those guys are getting more touches and big playoff moments, and it's more of like a uh, a team dynamic rather than leaning heavily, heavily on Tim Duncan, even though Tim Duncan was clearly the best player on the team during that stretch. But then there was that stretch in the early 2010s, right, where they make it to the NBA Finals and nearly win against the Miami Heat and then beat the Miami Heat in 2014. During that stretch, like Tim Duncan was still probably the best player on the team, uh, depending on who you ask, but at, it was much more convoluted. And on any given night, Tony Parker could have been the best player on their team. And that gap between Tony Parker and Tim Duncan was actually very small. And so when we say Tony Parker was the second best player on a championship team, this is not, you know... This is not the second best player on the team the way that like Andrew Wiggins was for Steph Curry last year, right? Like this is we have Tim uh, Tim Duncan and Tony Parker were pretty close to each other in overall impact at this point in their particular career. So Tony Parker was pretty resoundingly considered one of the ten best players in the league during the span. He made second team All NBA twice and and was one of the best playoff players in the league at that particular stretch of time. But like I said, like. Things would break down in the playoffs and they'd have to rely more on static shot creation than they do in the regular season. That's where Tony Parker's value came in big in those situations. So Tony's archetype, he was just a blazing quick speed guard, just like an absurdly quick little guard. Uh, he had one of the nastiest spin moves in the league, uh, a spin move that I think a lot of players have copied from him. There's a specific set of footwork that he can use too, like he can do it off of two feet, but he also had like a one foot spin that was kind of ridiculous, where instead of like establishing like firm pivots with both feet, he's kind of like pirouetting through the lane off of one leg. 
Um, you had a ridiculously good floater. Everyone called it the teardrop at the time, and it's interesting to me that no one calls it a teardrop anymore because that was basically just the Tony Parker thing, right? Uh, Synergy did not start tracking floaters until 2008, so I can't pull it up for the early stretch of his career. But in 2008, Tony Parker shot 74% on floaters. In 2009, he shot 66% on floaters, and in 2010, he shot 64% on floaters. He was like Nikola Jokic with that little pop shot in the lane on the drive. Uh, He had to lean on it a lot more in the early 2010s as he started to slow down a little bit, but he was still deadly with it. In 2013, he made 94 of them at a 51% clip. So he was taking them several times a game, but he was making more than half of them. He was always one of the highest volume pick and roll guys in the league. Super, super gifted passer. Guys were obsessed with kind of going underneath screens on Tony Parker to try to um, cut off his driving lanes and try to turn him into a jump shooter. Early in his career, he struggled with jump shooting, but then he kind of figured it out towards the end. In 2005, kind of the beginning of his prime, he only made 66 pull-up jump shots all year and only shot 37% effective field goal percentage on them. But by the time we got to 2013, he made 159 pull-up jump shots on 46% effective field goal percentage. So he just worked incredibly hard to build out a reliable mid-range pull-up jump shot to use against teams that would go underneath on pick and roll. And then, then he really started to use that to weaponize his passing as he would kind of like bait guys into coming out uh, specifically the big man to come out to show on that pull-up jump shot, and then he'd flip it down to to Tim Duncan or Tiago Splitter underneath the basket. He was really, really gifted pick-and-roll player. Um, in the 2013 season, there were 15 players in the league, similar to this year. There were 15 players in the league who ran at least 1,000 pick-and-rolls, and Tony Parker ranked second in the entire NBA inefficiency. First was Chris Paul, which I'm sure all of you Chris Paul fans will want to rub in my face uh, to further make me pay for my outrageous pick. Um, His crowning achievement, 2007 NBA Finals MVP. Tim Duncan was the best player on that team in uh, pretty clearly. Like in 2014, it was up for debate. 2007, Tim Duncan was the best player on that team. But Tony Parker's scoring was a huge part in that specific playoff run. It's also one of the big reasons why I'm not a huge fan of the Finals MVP award as it's currently constructed. To me, the Finals MVP should always go to the player who is the best player on the championship team. And just because a specific matchup leads to one player performing better in an NBA Finals shouldn't, in a lot of times, just statistically, not in what's actually happening on the court, because a lot of times schematics are what's pushing opportunities to a different player. See Andre Iguodala in the 2015 Finals, right? But to me, I would rather call it, instead of like a finals MVP, I would just call it like a championship MVP. And then whoever wins the championship, you give the trophy to the player that's clearly their best player from the start of the regular season all the way through to the end when they hoist the trophy. To me, that's what that trophy should be for, but that's not how it works. We have a finals MVP trophy and Tony Parker was the second best player on that team, but he averaged 21 points per game in that playoff run and averaged 25 points per game in the NBA Finals series against the Cleveland Cavaliers on 60% true shooting, winning his first and only Finals MVP award. Biggest what-if of Tony Parker's career, in my opinion, was the Ray Allen three-point shot. So, I actually posted a video, not of the three, but of the two shots that preceded it on my Twitter feed. You guys can find it there if you go look. But uh, this is a huge what-if, in my opinion, because I just broke down kind of for you guys the crowning achievement of Tony Parker, right? He wins back-to-back-to-back, second-team All-NBAs, right? He's arguably the best player, second best player on the 2013-2014 Spurs that make it to the finals twice and wins the championship in 2014. But in 2013, 
there was a moment where the Heat were up by three, and the series was um, the series was three two San Antonio, right? And they're in Miami, so San Antonio wins, they win the finals. And there's this play, I want to say there's about a minute and a half left, if I remember correctly, but there's this play where Tony Parker's working on LeBron James. And, you know, this is prime LeBron, right? Like, he's switching onto any player that he needs to guard, and he's one of the best defensive players in the league, probably the best player in the league defensively and offensively at that phase in his career. He's switched out onto Tony Parker. He's got to shut him down because the game's on the line, right? Well, they start trying to set picks to to get somebody else switched onto Tony Parker, and LeBron's just like, screw that. He's fighting through every pick. He stays with him, and the shot clock runs out, and Tony Parker has to take this ridiculous step-back three from the top of the key, and he drains it to tie the game. And then on the very next possession, he's working in pick and roll, and he gets downhill on Mario Chalmers, and Chalmers kind of cuts him off, and he's stuck with his back to the basket, like literally stuck with his left foot pivot foot with the rim over here with his back to the basket, and he just kind of pivots over his shoulder and makes this like ridiculous short right-handed jump shot in the lane. Just, just a ridiculously difficult shot, and it actually puts the Spurs up by two. And from there, we get into the free throw contest. LeBron has those turnovers, but then we get into the free throw contest, and then LeBron hits the three, and then uh, I think Kawhi misses the free throw on the next one, and then Ray Allen hits the three that ties the game. We go to overtime, the Heat win, and then the Heat end up winning the series. But literally, that entire arena was shell-shocked after those two shots. The Spurs were up by two, and if they would have made their free throws, they would have literally won the NBA championship. I think Manu Ginobili missed one, and I think uh, Kawhi Leonard missed one. Those were the two guys who missed in that situation. But let's just pretend that Ray Allen doesn't make that crazy corner three. Tony Parker has now stolen the 2013 NBA Finals. And, and again, like obviously, you lose that game. Miami's favored in Game 7. They're probably going to win. They end up actually winning in Game 7, right? So like Game 6 essentially determines the series. It flips. The entire series flips on that particular outcome. And Tony Parker came this close to stealing it. Now let me reframe this era from the st- standpoint of Tony Parker making back-to-back-to-back second-team All-NBAs a two-time champion, the finals MVP potentially in 2000 and, and uh in 2013, and arguably the best player on the team during those two years, depending on who you ask. Suddenly, that vaults Tony Parker into some ridiculous conversations, right? So, like, that's a really interesting what if in Tony Parker's career. But he's one of those guys that, like, because of his statistical production, he's never going to be viewed on the same level as some of his peers. Um, but, like, if you were there, you were terrified of Tony Parker when he had the ball, and there was a big moment where he had an opportunity to beat you. I, I remember. Even after the Ray Allen three, LeBron James guarded Tony Parker full court. And I still remember as a fan, and you guys, I'm a big LeBron fan. I'm watching that like just scared to hell that that Tony Parker's going to dribble down and score. He ends up throwing up some crazy shot along the baseline and misses it. But like Tony Parker was a terrifying player to root against. He was one of those guys that in any playoff setting could outplay any of the best stars in the league. And, and, and if you were there, you'd, you, you'd probably remember Tony Parker in a similar fashion. And he's probably a good example of that thing I'm talking about with with Chris Paul, right? Because like uh, most GMs would probably take Chris Paul over those years, right? But like, you know, I'm a big believer in actual playoff results, and just Tony Parker was just there on the biggest stage, just doing it time and time again. And it's a big part of why he's a four time NBA champion. All right, number twenty, Paul Pierce. He was the second best player on one championship team. Never made a first team All NBA. Three All NBA teams, though. And he won the NBA Finals MVP in 2008. This is another kind of guy that kind of fits that mold, right? Like you look at Paul George 
and he's got all of the all NBA selections more than Paul Pierce does, right? And he's, you know, the the highs are the regular season highs with Paul George are so high, right? But like anybody who was in the league during Paul Pierce's era thought more highly of Paul Pierce than this era thinks of Paul George in terms of how what he's capable of relative to his peers. So it's another good example of this particular dynamic. Um, his prime stats. I put his prime down from 2001 to 2013. In that stretch in the regular season, he averaged 22-6-4 and four on 57% true shooting. And in the playoffs, he averaged 21-6-4 and four on 55% true shooting. His claim to fame, uh, it's funny, I... I uh, I saw this the uh, uh, yesterday or two days ago on Twitter. Someone like took a, a video of Paul Pierce shooting um, some random game, and uh, someone goes like, "Man, you know, Twitter would have you thinking Paul Pierce was just another Jimmy Butler or another Paul George." Now, to be clear, as you guys know, I obviously have Paul Pierce over both, right? Because Jimmy Butler is further back on this list, and Paul. Uh, George is one of the guys who was like in the running but didn't actually make it, right? So I agree in principle in the sense that I view Paul Pierce above those guys, but I think Jimmy Butler is the perfect comp for Paul Pierce. I wouldn't say he's the Jimmy Butler of this era. I'd say Jimmy Butler is the Paul Pierce of his era, right? Because Paul Pierce came first, and I think Paul Pierce is the better player, but he's another one of those guys who's kind of a super weird archetype and was never truly considered to be on the same level as the guys at the very top of the league, but in any one-game setting against those guys, he was capable of outplaying them. To me, that is like the spitting image of that Jimmy Butler type of archetype. And I think when I saw that tweet, all I thought was like, oh, people are massively underrating Jimmy Butler. I've said this before on the show, but Jimmy Butler has scored 40 points in a playoff game eight times. He's scored 30 points in a playoff game like 20-something times and more times than Paul Pierce. I think Paul Pierce only has three uh, 40-point playoff games. Now, different era, higher usage, higher uh, pace, all those different things. But the point is, is like, it's not a, a an insult to Paul Pierce to put him in the same conversation as Jimmy Butler. You guys know how highly I think of Jimmy Butler. I just think Paul Pierce kind of fits a similar mold in his particular era. And while I've always talked about Jimmy Butler as kind of like a miniature version of LeBron James, to me, Paul Pierce was kind of like a chubbier, less athletic version of Kobe Bryant. There were a lot of similarities in his footwork and his shot form and the types of shots that he used to take. Like he kind of attacked in a very similar style, which is a big part of what made him so dynamic in playoff situations. He spent the first half of his career playing on some limited Celtics teams and put up a lot of big numbers, had some big playoff series, but never really had the talent necessary to compete. And then KG and uh, Ray Allen came and he finally had an opportunity to demonstrate it on the biggest stage and he immediately did. Um, So I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to come back to his archetype. I want to skip ahead to his claim to fame and uh, uh, just kind of talk a little bit about what he accomplished with the Celtics and then we'll go back and talk about what kind of basketball player he was. So in the 2008 playoff run, Paul Pierce averaged 25-5 and on 57% true shooting. He outplayed a young LeBron James in Game 7, in a Game 7 where LeBron scored 45 points. Um, In that particular game, Paul Pierce scored 41 points on 23 shots and beat LeBron to a key loose ball at the end of the game. Just, I thought, kind of outplayed him in, in that particular game. And then in the NBA Finals in 2008, I thought he flat out outplayed Kobe Bryant. Kobe averaged 25 points, but he was super inefficient. Um, in that particular series, Paul Pierce averaged 22-5-6 and six on 59% true shooting. 
in uh, in uh, uh, beating the Lakers and winning the 2008 NBA Finals MVP. Kind of similar to like we were talking about with Tony Parker. I thought Kevin Garnett was the best player on that particular team, but it was close, and Paul Pierce absolutely played like a superstar on the biggest stage and made a lot of the big plays en route to them winning a championship. He kind of like took on that role as the closer, kind of similarly to Tony Parker with the Spurs. Um, his archetype, like I said before, it's it like it's kind of is just like a chubbier, like shifty, like less athletic version of Kobe Bryant, right? He was only about six seven, but he had ridiculously long arms. He had a seven foot three wingspan. He was kind of strangely coordinated and, and weirdly agile. Um, still had a lot of poster dunks over the top of people, even though he wasn't a great athlete, just because his arms were so damn long. And he was just one of the best rise and fire guys in the league. Now, to me, rise and fire is like get to your spot. Even if you don't have a ton of separation, just elevate over the top of everyone and knock down a jump shot. That, to me, is what reminds me the most of Kobe. Like, if you just go pull up a a bunch of footage of Paul Pierce scoring on YouTube, you're going to notice a lot of similarities in the footwork and the pivots and the pump fakes and the even like even the long drawn out release on his jump shot where he's kind of like elevating as high as he can and like holding on to the ball a little bit longer. That a lot of that stuff just kind of reminds me of Kobe. Obviously Kobe's a much better player, but like the, a lot of there were some similarities there and I think that led to some of his uh uh high level impact in that specific playoff environment. Um, he was consistently viewed as one of the 15 best players in the league during his era and one of the 10 best playoff players in the league during his era. He's also one of the best foul grifters in the league. Used utilized the pump fake extremely well to get to the line. Here's a crazy stat for you. Paul Pierce made 6,918 free throws in his career. That is 10th in NBA history, regardless of era, not just the last 25 years, but regardless of era. He was just one of those guys, you know, and again, it's a, a similar kind of thing. Like those of you guys who are in your 30s or older are going to remember that like when you, when you had to root against Paul Pierce in a playoff series, he was terrifying. He was just one of those guys, kind of like Jimmy Butler, that you just knew that even if you had the best player in the series, that he was capable of going toe-to-toe with your guy and beating you. And he did on several occasions over the course of his career. Biggest what if of Paul Pierce's career, in my opinion, what if KG did not get hurt at the start of the 2009 season. A lot of people don't remember this, but the Celtics started the year after they won the title. They started 27-2. and Now, to give you some perspective, the 2016 Warriors are the best regular season team of all time, and they started 28-1. and So they were one game behind the Golden State Warriors to start that particular season before Kevin Garnett goes down with the injury. He ended up missing the playoffs, and, and then they ended up losing to Orlando in the conference semis. But again, that was the best Celtics team. That was better than the 2007 team. And, you know, obviously if Paul Pierce becomes a guy with two NBA championships and two finals MVPs, it gets a lot more complicated in terms of him in all-time conversations, especially if you, like, we look back at that era as, like, you know, the Lakers-Celtics era, and Kobe got two, Paul Pierce got one. What if it was Paul Pierce got two and Kobe got one? You could see how that would kind of make things a little bit more complicated. Number 19, Chauncey Billups. Mr. Big Shot, best player on one championship team. Never made a first-team All-NBA, but he did make three All-NBA teams. He had two All-Defense teams as well. He also won the NBA Finals MVP in 2004. I thought he was the best player on the Pistons in that particular era. It's obviously obviously it's convoluted because it's similar to the Spurs situation with Tony Parker where like nobody on the team averaged over 20 points in 2004. It was more equal opportunity. They had a lot of really good players on the team, so like 
Obviously, it's not the same type of statistical production that you see from some of his peers, but he was the best player on a team that hoisted the trophy. And that has to be worth a ton, as you guys know, in my particular list. So I put down on his prime, 2003 to 2010, 17 points, 3 rebounds, and 6 assists on 59% true shooting. And then in the playoffs, 18 points, 3 rebounds, and 6 assists on 58% true shooting. His claim to fame, he was the offensive engine of one of the best defensive teams of all time. So he filled a very important role for a team that tried to win with defense but needed to get baskets. Obviously, he was the engine that made that all work. Every kind of player, you know, it's funny. When I think back and and think about the Detroit Pistons, they were a team I watched a lot when I was young because obviously I was rooting for LeBron in the Eastern Conference. And I think they made it to five consecutive Eastern Conference finals, if I remember correctly. Um, but like each, they had like this perfect starting five where like each guy kind of filled a different archetype, right? Like Chauncey Billups was this like unbelievable skill guard who just had this ridiculous pull up jump shot. And and he was kind of the point guard who ran the show and like ran a lot of pick and roll, things like that. Richard Hamilton was like, like the classic throwback two guard that was just flying off of screens. I looked up this stat today. Uh, in 2005, which is when they started tracking this particular data, Rip Hamilton shot 264 shots flying off the of screens. That's more than nine NBA teams did this year. So Rich, Rip Hamilton by himself would have been right around the 22 spot in the NBA this year in total off-screen attempts going against the other 30 NBA teams. So that just gives you an idea of how the league has changed a lot. Uh, but Rip Hamilton was a lot of off-ball stuff, a lot of flying off screens. He did a little bit of post-up ISOs as well. Tayshawn Prince was just this terrifying defensive wing with a ridiculous wingspan. Um, He did most of his work in transition and in spot-up situations, but he also could score a little bit as well. Rasheed Wallace was a post-up fulcrum. They throw the ball down to him on the block a lot. He also could knock down a spot-up jump shot. He was also a great rim protector. And then Ben Wallace was just like far and away the best defensive player in the league at the time. And so at the front line, you had Tayshawn Prince, who's one of the very best defensive players in the league. Rasheed Wallace, who was an excellent defensive player, and then Ben Wallace, who was the best defensive player in the league. And those three guys just completely screwed up every single team they played against offensively and caused all sorts of problems. And that was the bread and butter for how they won. But Rip Hamilton and and Chauncey Billups had to carry most of the offensive load. and, and, And Chauncey, in particular, did the most in terms of scoring and facilitating for his teammates. Now, he was a big, strong guard. He was about six foot three and weighed in at about 210 pounds. He was an absolutely dead-eye pull-up shooter. Now, pull-up shooting data was not tracked on Synergy before 2005, so I can't go back that far. Um, but in the 2005 season, Chauncey Billups shot 45% on pull-up jump shots and 52% when you weighed it for threes. He had this... Uh, everything for Chauncey Billups was built out of a high hesitation in his left hand. So, like... He would kind of go through his legs or in a crossover, and he'd kind of sit in that high hesitation in his left hand. This is a move that I teach a ton to the younger players that I coach, and a big part of it is it's the bridge move that bridges everything together. When you're in that high hesitation in your left hand, you can rise up into a jump shot. You can continue to push the ball forward as a drive to the left. You can hit an in-and-out dribble. You can cross over to the right. You can go between your legs. You can go behind the back. You can literally do anything out of a high hesitation dribble. It is the bridge move that connects everything else. And so with Chauncey, he was just like a pretty damn reliable pull-up jump shooter out of that left-handed high hesitation. Now, he almost exclusively drove left. He drove left about 70% of the time. But it was still too super hard to guard because it was a give and a take. You could press up to take away the jump shot, and he's dusting you to your left hand to his left hand, or you can play off, and he's going to rise up and knock that shot down. 
Um, he used that threat of that shot to generate a lot of rim pressure. He was also a great passer. He also was pretty big and strong, so he's a great post-up player uh, among guards. <clears throat> Just kind of would like back smaller guards down, get closer to the basket, and take like little short fadeaway jump shots in the lane. He was a big-time short jump shot uh, maker out of the post. His crowning achievement was winning finals MVP in 2004. He averaged 21 points, three rebounds, and five assists on that series on 70, 70% true shooting knocking out the vaunted Shaq Kobe Lakers in five games. The biggest what if of Chauncey Billups' career, in my opinion, is what if Robert Ory misses the three-point shot with six seconds left in game five of the 2005 NBA Finals. The Pistons were up by two and the series was tied at two, so they were gone to San Antonio with two opportunities to win an NBA championship. Now, once again, kind of like I was talking about with Tony Parker and Paul Pierce, let's reframe this as a back-to-back champion in 2004-2005 with two finals MVPs knocking out literally the Spurs and the Lakers along the way, you can imagine how that would put Chauncey Billups and really that whole Pistons team all time if that's how it would have gone down. But that's not how it went. Robert Ory made the shot. Spurs won in seven, and the Pistons ended up only getting one championship. Um, you know, it's funny. Robert Ory showed up in a lot of like the the filters and stuff that I was running as I was tracking championship players and stuff. It's just kind of crazy how many big playoff moments Robert Ory has been there for. All right, last guy for today, number 18, Pau Gasol, second best player on two championship teams, never made a first team All-NBA, but he made four All-NBA teams. In his prime, I put down from 2006 to 2015, in the regular season, he averaged 19 points, 10 rebounds, and four assists, 57% true shooting. In the playoffs, he averaged 17 points, 10 rebounds, and four assists on 56% true shooting. His claim to fame really is he was the second most skilled big man in the league over that era, basically behind Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, He was also the guy who helped resuscitate Kobe Bryant's career in Los Angeles. As we know, Kobe was threatening, straight up asked for a trade. It looked like that era was coming to a close. Pau Gasol comes in, gives them the necessary boost in talent that they needed. Suddenly they become a championship caliber team. Um, His archetype. He was a classic throwback post-up big man. Over 40% of his shot attempts came out of post-up situations. He preferred the left block. Actually, as a right-handed player, he preferred to take look uh, hooks over his right shoulder with his left hand. Like his most common post-up play type was just dump it to him on the on the left block. He'd kind of work with his right hand into the lane, and then he'd quick spin back to his left hand and make a hook shot um, over the top of the defender. But that was just one of his go-to moves. He obviously had everything. He had a left shoulder hook. He had a right shoulder hook. He had up and under moves. He had fadeaways over both shoulders. He could make pop shots in the lane out of pick and roll. He was a good pick and pop jump shooter as well. Like he just was, like I said, the second most skilled big man in that era. Um, Unfortunately, Synergy did not start tracking hook shots until 2011, so I can't pull up his exact accuracy. But in uh, 2010, which I look at as Powell's best season as a pro, he shot 48% in field goal attempts out of the post, which is insanely good for any sort of static half-court shot creating situation. His crowning achievement was thoroughly outplaying Kevin Garnett in the 2010 NBA Finals. He averaged 19-12 and in that series on 56% true shooting. He utterly demolished the Celtics on the glass in that series. It's funny because like... Early on in Powell's career, and this was a reputation that followed a lot of European players, but a lot of people looked at him as soft, and he didn't play particularly great in the 2008 season, right? Specifically in the NBA Finals, and so as we look forward at at, at the uh, 2010 season, it's kind of crazy to see that transformation because he straight up bullied the Celtics front court. He had 35, 35 offensive rebounds in the 2010 NBA Finals. That's five per game. He had nine offensive rebounds in Game 7. 
He had 19 points and 18 rebounds overall in Game 7, and then he hit the biggest shot of the series. Again, this was Game 7, series tied at 3, winner take all. Um, The Lakers were up 4 with just under 2 minutes left, and he was posting up Rasheed Wallace once again on that left block like he always likes. Spun back towards the baseline like he always likes to do. And the the Celtics actually came with a triple team. They brought Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett over and just smothered him. He ended up having to double pump and take this weird kind of like jump shot as he was falling to the ground. But he made it, put the Lakers up six with a minute and a half left, and that essentially iced the series as the Lakers went on to win their second consecutive NBA championship. Uh, he was definitely the best player on the floor in Game 7 of that series, and you could even make a case that he was the best player on the Lakers in that particular series. But... That is a take that I personally disagree with. I tend to think that Kobe, especially with what Boston was throwing at him and with all the stuff that he did throughout the entire season, kind of back to what we were talking about with finals MVP versus championship MVP, I thought Kobe was a deserving finals MVP. Biggest what if of Paul Pierce's career, or excuse me, Pau Gasol's career. This was one that I had a hard time with because I feel like Pau Gasol's career went the way it was supposed to. Like he kind of learned how to play in the NBA in Memphis And then he played his best years with a really, really good Lakers team and got to experience what his individual ceiling was like. 2011, 2012, they clearly just weren't good enough anymore. So they make an all-in trade for Steve Nash and for Dwight Howard. And then everyone breaks down that season. Like Dwight Howard played all the time, but he wasn't the same Dwight Howard. He was just stiffer than he used to be. Uh, Steve Nash was in and out of the lineup with injuries all season. Pau Gasol himself only played, I think, 49 games in that particular season. And then Kobe ends up tearing his Achilles. And then from there, basically all those guys' careers were uh, over. Dwight Howard ended up transitioning, but the other three guys were basically done at that point, right? So um, I don't really have a, a, a really good what if, just simply based on the fact that the I feel like things kind of went the way they were supposed to for Pau Gasol. But if I had to choose one, I'd say, what if the Lakers did not blow game four of the 2008 NBA Finals? They were up by 20, 70 to 50 in the middle of the third quarter of game four, down two games to one. And they scored just 21 points over the final 18 minutes of that game as the Celtics came back to win and take a 3-1 lead in the series. Uh, obviously, it's not a sure thing from there because they would have had to win game five at home to go up 3-2 and then they'd have to win a game in Boston. But they would have been in a commanding position in the series had they not blown that lead. So it's a significant what if. And then obviously now we're talking about a three-peat if the Lakers win that particular series. So that's all I have for today uh, with Pau Gasol at number 18. We'll be back tomorrow with number 17, 16, 15, and 14. Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 